from Beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Jefferson Morley, investigative journalist and author of the book Scorpion's Dance, our program tonight coming to you from our home base at AM 560, The Answer, WIND, in beautiful Elk Grove Village. Our phone lines open at 1-800-723-8289. We are waiting for our special guest this evening, Jefferson Morley, uh, to contact us uh, via Zoom. And then uh, he will be with us uh, for the uh, next uh, two hours. That's the scheduled plan. He uh, just called me back on my phone just moments ago. Uh, so maybe there's some way in which uh, we might be able to reach him. But if not, uh, we're going to begin. Uh, actually, tonight I wanted to spend most of the time talking about the 50th anniversary of Watergate, which uh, is coming up uh, next week. That's the 50th anniversary of the, the break-in at the Watergate uh, headquarters. Uh, but um, uh, And then we were also going to be talking with Jefferson Morley, who's written this new book, and again, he is scheduled to join us via Zoom, but uh, he has not yet joined us. In fact, Fritz, let me just suggest something. Uh, we got a call coming in, and maybe that's Mr. Morley. But anyway, uh, he is our scheduled guest for the full two hours this evening. And what I wanted to do, I didn't want to rush to judgment on the House uh, hearings uh, into January 6th. I wanted to have a few days of hearings before we really jumped in and dissected it. So that was not my plan this evening, although I did want to discuss with Mr. Morley uh, whether there are any similarities uh, between uh, the hearings that uh, took place this past or past week and in the future days and also what took place at uh, Watergate, because obviously uh, we all know that Richard Nixon was a bad guy, supposedly. At least that's the way we remember it. And uh, there was a narrative developed by uh, the Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein. They developed a, a, a storyline that uh, America uh, fell for, hook, line, and sinker. And it proved basically that Richard Nixon did a lot of bad things. And he did. And he tried to obstruct justice. And he did. And he did a lot of things. But the question is, uh, was there anyone else out there sort of assisting uh, Richard Nixon as he... Uh, fell by the wayside as president of the United States. Uh, there was some coverage of potential involvement by the CIA uh, way back when, uh, in 1972, in the years that followed. But again, uh, there is uh, one journalist uh, who joins us now, his uh, Jefferson Morley. He has spent many, many years looking into the activities of the American intelligence community, American military-industrial complex, and his new book, a former reporter many years ago with the Washington Post, his book is called Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. And again, uh, Mr. Morley joins us now via Zoom. And Jefferson, nice to have you with us on, uh, on, on Beyond the Beltway. I've, I've waited uh, 50 years to do this program. <laughs> and you're the expert. So my, qu my question is, uh, as I just posed to the audience, do you see any similarities between what you discovered uh, involving CIA activity in Watergate, and you focus primarily on the activities of the director, uh, Richard Helms, and his relationship with Richard Nixon. 
However, do you see some similarities between what the CIA was up to 50 years ago and maybe some of the things that they might have been up to or surrounding uh, uh, insofar as what happened on January 6th? Any similarities? Not working. Well, your voice is working because we just heard you say not working. So keep talking. Hello, are you there? Can you speak? Can you continue to speak, Jefferson? All right, let's let's try to uh, reach him again, and I will uh, I, I will ask uh, the audience if they see any similarities between what happened. Again, part of what we're going to discuss this evening is the uh, <clears throat> the activities of what happened with the CIA are uh, uh, were not very actively covered, you know, 50 years ago in the reporting of 50 years ago, and this. Uh, uh, this book is supposed to bring us up to date on uh, what uh, happened, and we're trying our damnedest to uh, be able to uh, carry this with you. But uh, uh, his phone is ringing, so uh, we'll continue to try to reach him. Um, but anyway, while we are waiting, I would like to hear from those out in radio and TV land uh, watching us on YouTube or on Facebook Live. Uh, I'd like to hear from you what you thought of the hearings or the one day of hearings that you saw. But I understand that Mr. Morley is back. So, Mr. Morley, are you there? Can you hear us now? Yes, I can. Hi, Bruce. Hi, how are you? Uh, let me be good. I, I apologize for the delay. Your apology is totally accepted by me and my entire affiliate base. But my question to you is, what, what similarity is there, if any, between what happened 50 years ago in the involvement of the CIA and the FBI and what happened allegedly at January 6th. Is there any similarities? Is there any similarities? I think the situations are pretty different um, in terms of what was going on at that time, mm -hmm. at the time of Watergate, which I cover in my book, Scorpion's Dance. Yes, we've mentioned it several uh, times. Yeah. Um, at that time, the relationship between the president and the director of the CIA was quite close. Richard Nixon, the president, and Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, um, had a pretty good working relationship up until the time the Watergate burglars were arrested. And then the, the interests of those two men, the interests of the CIA and the White House, diverged. And over the next two years... The CIA protected itself while President Nixon was forced to resign. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that tell us about January 6th? I think the situations are very different. Um, uh, President Trump was always hostile to the CIA, um, and, 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 and that hostility was returned, at least by many of the former leaders of the mm -hmm. CIA. Um, so I don't see a lot of immediate similarities in that way. Do you, what do you see? Well, no, what I, what I would say is that you have, as, as you make your case in the book, is that the, the, these were two peas in the pod. These guys knew each other. Uh, they got along with each other up until, you know, the, the final breaking point. But when Richard Helms went before the Congressional Committee, uh, chaired by Sam Irvin, he specifically declared, hey, uh, the CIA had nothing to do with this. And that was a bold-faced lie. That was when a lot of government officials were lying uh, through their teeth. And yeah. uh, he, he held to that lie for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So 
But what was the let's just uh, let me back up a little bit because okay. uh, we must remember that not everybody listening to the program is my age or your age, although you're younger than I. So let's let's right. also tell this story as if someone who's in their 30s or early 40s is uh, watching and listening tonight, because they they know the official narrative, uh, they know about Woodward and Bernstein, they know the alleged official story. So as I tell right. the story with you helping me this evening, I'd like to get a sense of who the characters are and where the current, where the key turning points were in the Watergate story, and also the big hole in that story that you see and have discovered in your book, Scorpion's Dance. I'm Bruce Dumont. We do have to pause right now, Jeff, and then we'll be back uh, at 1-800-723-8289. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. 
Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway, and we're talking with Jefferson Morley, author of the book Scorpion's Dance. Uh, Jefferson, because of all the the various characters uh, that are part of this Watergate story, I want to go through again uh, for not only the current generation, but a younger generation that may be listening this evening, names that they may have heard historically, but they'd like to know a little bit more. How deeply were they involved in the story you're trying to tell this evening? Everybody knows the name J. Edgar Hoover. Was he involved in any of the planning or the cover-up of what took place? No, he was not. Um, uh, Hoover was very old and, in fact, mm-hmm. died during, right. uh, shortly before the Watergate break-in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you mentioned people know a little bit of the story. Let's just rehearse it from the beginning. Sure. You know, when we say Watergate, what do we, what do we mean? Why are people talking about the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in? Well, it was this transformative event in American politics, first time a president resigned, uh, uh, first time the CIA was investigated, first time money in politics was really exposed and investigated. So a whole lot of change came out of the Watergate years. And it all started when five men were caught burglarizing the offices of the Democratic National Committee, the Democratic Party, on June 17, 1972. The men were dressed in suits. They were carrying $100 bills with consecutive serial numbers. They had sophisticated wiretapping and breaking and entering equipment with them. And the question was, who were these guys? What were they doing? And in fact, they had been, they were former CIA operatives who were working for the White House of President Richard Nixon. And they were, they were basically engaged in kind of political spying, dirty tricks. They were trying to who get recru- information who on Democrats. Them? Who recruited them? The, uh, um, the, the burglars were recruited by um, the staff, people working for Bob Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, and Attorney General uh, John Mitchell. Mm-hmm. So uh, John Dean was one of those White House lawyers who recruited them. Um, and... But really, who recruited them was Nixon. Um, in, in the summer of 1971, Nixon wanted to go after Daniel Ellsberg. He was the former Pentagon uh, analyst who had leaked the so-called Pentagon Papers to the right. Vietnam War. Right. Pentagon Papers showed that the Johnson administration, the Kennedy administration, had all been lying about the, the conduct of the war. And it was this great scandal that the government hadn't been telling the truth. President Nixon was furious about the leak of classified information, and he wanted to hire some people to go after and discredit Ellsberg. Um, And so that's when Nixon wanted somebody, and the CIA recommended a former employee, Howard Hunt. Mm -hmm. That was CIA Director Richard Helms who recommended Hunt to the White House. And so then Hunt brought in his Cuban friends, um, and they were joined by a man named Gordon Liddy, a former FBI agent. And that became the burglary team. Those were the guys who were caught at Watergate. And they were basically engaged in political espionage for the Nixon White House. Mm-hmm. That part of the story is pretty well known, if you've seen the movie All yeah, the President's yeah. Men. And Howard That's- Hunt, your point, Howard Hunt, was a, he was a big deal 
in this Watergate break-in. And basically, he was a buddy-buddy with Helms. They had worked together on a variety of projects. So he was yes. basically his, uh, his, his, his goombay in getting him inside the White House to work on these projects with Nixon, who he had, who had, who he had already known. Right. And so that part of the story that the president got these burglars, the burglars were caught, they were investigated by the Washington Post. That part of the story is well known, and it's in the movie. Right. That part of the story is not so much inaccurate. Right. It's completely simplistic. <clears throat> because what we now know is those burglars were, came to the White House recommended by the CIA, and the, as I show in my book, the information that they obtained in their political burglaries was fed back to the CIA. So the hidden hand of the CIA was really very much involved in the Watergate scandal, although no one saw it at the time. Or it, people suspected it, but, they, but it, it couldn't be proven the way I show in this book. And again, I think what we should know for those that have not followed the, the history of, uh, uh, of the intelligence communities in the United States, Historically, uh, there's always been a battle between the FBI and the CIA. It's been over turf. It's been over budgets. And so uh, anything that the FBI was doing, uh, if the president thought that he wanted to sort of put the kibosh on any investigation, he would go to the CIA or he would go to the DIA, which is the Defense Intelligence Committee or, or organization, and he would try to get them to do, to do, do, do dirt or undue dirt uh, dished by the FBI. Well, that's what Nixon did was right. he went to Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, and he said, right. you, you need to kill that FBI investigation because the FBI right. was the FBI was very suspicious. Got burglars in business suits with hundred dollar bills. Mm-hmm. The FBI guys who investigated the case, they assumed they were CIA operatives right. and, and they were. Uh, they, yeah, they, and they were CIA operatives. Another name that most people may not know, although later, many years later, he was identified as Deep Throat, and that's L. Patrick Gray. Who was he? Well, no, L. Patrick Gray was the director of the FBI. Deep Throat was a man named Mark Felt. Mark Felt. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misspoke. Who was the deputy director of the CIA and who was a very ambitious fellow. Remember I said at at, at the beginning, J. Edgar Hoover was very sick in Dixon's term and, in fact, dies in May 1972. Well, when that happened, these men at the top of the FBI were angling for that top job. And Mark Felt was one of those people. At the same time, he was serving as a source for Bob Woodward, the Washington Post reporter who was investigating the burglars. Right. One thing that I have heard others uh, opine over the years is that uh, as the evidence uh, developed and the investigation developed by the FBI and the very favorable uh, treatment it received in the Washington Post and newspapers around the country became their story almost exclusively for a couple of years, uh, all, all that information was negative. But whenever there was a big chunk of negative information that came out uh, generally with sourced by the FBI, someone, and the thought was whether it was the White House or assistance by the CIA, there'd be some other piece of information that would try to pull that that bad news down, and that CIA may, be, may at some point been quietly trying to help Nixon survive. Do you buy that? Well, 
it, 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 it's, it's a very complicated situation yes. because um, Nixon and Helms had been working together closely. When this burglary happens, right, they, they both kind of have guilty knowledge on the other. They, they can destroy each other, but n neither of them wants to take the blame. And right. so Helms kind of withdraws his thing. Now, what you're talking about, this, this leaking, where high officials give one version of the story to a newspaper reporter, and then another official will give their version of the story to that reporter or maybe to another paper or right. a competing publication to try and get their story out. And there was a lot of that going on. For example, in this, one of the stories I tell in the book was when, when, when the investigation, when they were turning up the heat um, on, the, on, on the CIA to, uh, to, to shut down the FBI investigation of the burglars, Richard Helms goes um, and tells the FBI, he says, oh, you should, um, you should check out the burglars' connection to John Ehrlichman. John Ehrlichman was one of Nixon's top two advisors. And so what Helms was doing was he was telling the FBI, pay attention to those guys over there. That way they wouldn't pay attention to him and his CIA boys who were among the burglars. So this, this art of leaking information to protect your story in the, in the national press, that was definitely going on throughout Watergate. Did, did the name Richard Bast, private investigator Richard Bast, ever come up in your investigations of this uh, moment in American history? I don't think so, but give me a little context. Why do you ask about Well, Richard, Richard Bast was a well-known, respected uh, private investigator, a former FBI agent in Washington, D.C. at the time. And Charles Colson, who was special counsel to the President of the United States, uh, went to a meeting at Dick Bast's house because the President wanted to hire Dick Bast to find out where the leaks were coming from because he couldn't trust anybody in the FBI and he didn't trust everybody in the CIA and that this was going to be a private guy deputized by, uh, you know, by Colson and by Nixon himself to try to bail yeah, Nixon yeah. out. Does that ring a bell right. with you? Yes, it does, Bruce. Remember, I, I, Nixon was casting about for people who could do this oh, job yeah. on Daniel Ellsberg. And, right. and Bast was one of the people that he talked about. Mm -hmm. But when Helms came along and recommended Howard Hunt, a former CIA man, then the White House settled on Hunt. So Bast was one of the people that they considered for this type of you know, kind of private investigation, mm -hmm. uh, 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 not a, almost dirty trick style of, of politics. But Howard Hunt was the guy who they actually wound up hiring. Mm -hmm. Our phone number is 1-800-723-8289, 1-800-723-8289. Uh, 50 years after the break-in, we are looking at the uh, through Scorpion's Dance, which is a new book called, uh, subtitled The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. And uh, we continue with its author, Jefferson Morley. And uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the, uh, the, the Skymaster. Tell us about him. Richard Helms One second, we was... Do, we, do have, we do have to break. I'm, forgive me, uh, okay. Jefferson, but I'm operating without a clock tonight for some reason. Okay. And uh, maybe we can find the clock. Because I have time on my hand, but I don't know what the time is. I'll be back <laughs> shortly. Okay.
This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway, and my clock is now working, so uh, thank you very much, Fritz, for cleaning my clock. I know you've always wanted to do that, but thanks very much. Uh, Jefferson Morley joins us, uh, and uh, I'm going to let him take uh, 15 seconds to introduce himself. Give, give us a little about your background. Let me mention that your book is called Scorpion's Dance, The President, the Spymaster, and Watergate. And uh, let me uh, ask you to give a little biographical information about yourself for about 15 seconds. Jefferson, go ahead. Okay. I'm a career Washington journalist. This is my third book about the CIA. First one was called Our Man in Mexico. Uh -huh. uh, another one called The Ghost. And now 
uh, Scorpions Dance. Um, and uh, I've been a reporter in Washington for a long time, know a lot about the CIA, and was always drawn to this story because I felt that the full story wasn't known. And Scorpion Dance tells us a lot more about the Watergate affair than was previously known. Thank you for doing that. Uh, the impetus also is, as I understand, you learned about uh, a series of taped conversations between Richard Nixon and uh, Richard Helms, and uh, those yeah. conversations led you to this book. So what were the, what were the key elements of those conversations? Well, um, these were the, one of the stories of the Nixon White House was that President Nixon, starting in 1971, taped all of his conversations, both in his office and on his phone. And so right. there was this huge body of 4,000 hours of, of tape. And among there were nine, 11 conversations between Richard Nixon, the president, and Richard Helms, the director of the CIA. And it's the only time in American history that we have <clears throat> recorded conversations between a president and, and a CIA director. So that makes this material very unusual. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that you get a real, like, fly-on-the-wall type of hearing of these, you know, two very powerful men mm -hmm. in the U.S. government. So... That was the origin of those books, and, and that, that, um, those conversations really revealed a lot about the men. Before the break, Bruce, you asked about, so who was this guy, Richard Helms? You know, people, have, of course, know Richard Nixon, but Richard Helms they probably right. may not know. Richard Helms was the eighth director of the CIA. He was a career intelligence officer. Um, he came from a well-to-do family on the Philadelphia main line, went to boarding school in Switzerland. He had been a uh, a reporter b before World War II. Mm -hmm. During World War II, he went into the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA, uh, America's first foreign intelligence agency. And after World War II, the OSS, as it was called, kind of morphed into or evolved into what became the CIA, which was created in 1947. And Richard Helms was hired on day one. So career CIA officer very much the opposite of Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. Helms is a very smooth, gentlemanly, East Coast. Uh, people often use the word aristocratic, mm -hmm. uh, applied the word aristocratic to him, whereas Nixon is almost the polar opposite. You know, grows up in a, on a lemon farm in Southern California, pretty poor, doesn't have the money to go to, can't, can't afford to go to Harvard Law School. Mm -hmm. And so Nixon always has this kind of resentment and envy of people like Helms. Um, and so the two men, Nixon was very mistrustful of Helms, but Helms was a very smooth guy, and he flattered Nixon, and, he, and this is what you hear on the tapes. You, he, he praises Nixon, and politically, while culturally they were very different, politically they were not that different. They were both hardcore anti-communists. They were both wanted to spy on the anti-war movement at home, they wanted to expand the war in Vietnam, not wind it down. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> they had a lot in common, and this, this enabled them to kind of have an effective working relationship. And in fact, after the end of four years, you know, they, they really did. And one of those conversations uh, mm -hmm. takes place on the night of June 16, 1972, or the, the afternoon of June mm -hmm. 1972. Friendly conversation between the president and the CIA director. That was about 15 hours before the burglars were arrested. Hmm. So right up until the moment that the burglars are arrested, you see this 
these men are working together. They, they figured out how to get along. Mm-hmm. Then the burglary happens, and that's when their paths diverge. So, but in these tapes, you really hear the, the conversation of these two men. And for me, that really made, makes the story come alive. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can hear them talking. It's not me describing. It's you hear them talking. You really get a sense of these two now, men. Who, uh, when when uh, Richard Helms uh, left uh, the head of the CIA, who replaced him, and what relationship did they have with Richard Nixon? Because this was long before Nixon resigned. Yeah. Um, Helms was succeeded by another career CIA officer named Bill Colby. Okay. Um, Colby did not have any kind of relationship with Nixon, and um, the two men really did not have really any contact at all. By that time, Nixon was very um, suspicious of the CIA. He couldn't get them under control, um, and he had a lot of problems of his own. And by that time, the CIA, the Watergate scandal was starting to spread from just being a White House affair into people looking into abuses of power about by the CIA. So, but, but Colby um, was Colby was like Helms in that he was sort of an upper crust uh, aristocratic type, uh, sort of a buttoned up type of guy, as, as you would expect to head the CIA. But but he was not buddy buddy or had any long term uh, uh, relations, or it, they didn't know similar skeletons that each other had. Right. Yes, and 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 that was a big difference. Helms and Nixon knew a lot about each other going all the way back to 1960 Mm -hmm. when Nixon was vice president under President Eisenhower Mm -hmm. and Helms was a senior official in the clandestine service. And they were both knowledgeable about uh, and involved in uh, plots to kill Cuban leader Fidel Castro. Mm -hmm. And that was a secret that both men wanted to keep very badly and, mm-hmm. and 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 it didn't come out until uh until both of them were until nixon had resigned yeah, and frank uh, and, and helms was and helms was uh out of out of the cia but we should mention that uh as as a parting gift when he left the cia nixon appointed him appointed him as an ambassador to iran yes and that was before yeah. the fall of of the shah right the Shah was still in, yeah. he was appointed, and then he was he was there uh, as part of the, uh, the the you know the breakdown in the U.S. embassy, uh, uh, which led to 444 days of captivity on the part of uh, uh, Helms Americans. was Helms was not ambassador at right. the time of the okay. at, at the embassy was taken over. He left in 1976. Okay, but yes, one thing that he did was, you know, they had so much on each other, Nixon and Helms, that. Nixon was able, I mean, Helms was able to kind of extract this favor from, from, from Nixon. And the deal was kind of implicit. Helms was, you know, I'm not going to rat on you. You give me this ambassador position. You don't fire me. You know, you, you, so I have a kind of face-saving solution to leaving the government. I'm not leaving under any kind of shadow. That was very important to Helms. And so Nixon gave that to him. That was kind of the bargain between these two men. Yes, and then Helms went to be ambassador of Iran, and he was quite close to the Shah of Iran. They had both gone to the same boarding school in Switzerland, right. but um, Helms had left there before the, uh, the fall of the Shah's government a couple of years later. Uh, going back to the secrets they had 
uh, about each other and about things that they were involved in. Both had a long history of skullduggery in a variety of areas. Um, tell us, if you can, if there's any information related to the Kennedy assassination that the two of them might have been involved in or aware of? Uh, that's a great question, Bruce. And this is one of the most important or significant findings in Scorpion's Dance. Mm -hmm. Is, yes, the assassination of President Kennedy was an issue between President Nixon and Richard Helms. Um, it was a subtle thing, and, and it goes back to this kind of the secrets that they had on each other. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but we have... We have confirmation of this story, and we knew some of it before, and I add one more piece in, the, in this book that I think clinches it. So let me explain, because it's, it, it, it's complicated. So when Nixon came, became president, one of the first things that he did was he sent John Ehrlichman. I mentioned him before. He was Nixon's top policy, domestic policy advisor. Very trusted. He sent John Ehrlichman from the White House to go to CIA headquarters. And he, at, he said, I want you to go and I want you to get um, information about two embarrassing incidents that happened during the, Ken the, the presidency of John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. One was about the Bay of Pigs. That was the, where the CIA invasion force was defeated by Fidel Castro's forces in April 1961. That was early, very in the, early, early in the administration. Yeah, like within 100 days right. of when Kennedy had taken office. Um, uh, the most humiliating defeat in the history of the CIA at that, at, at that point. And then also the assassination of South Vietnamese President Diem in November 1963, shortly before President Kennedy himself was assassinated. So Nixon wants the CIA's, he wants, you know, their secret information on these two things, not what's been made public, but what they have in, in their classified side. Right. So he sends Ehrlichman over to CIA and, Ehrlichman meets with Helms, and Helms mutters a lot of nice words and shuffles the paper on his And Ehrlichman would go back to the White House empty-handed. He never got anything out of Dick Helms. Right. Helms just wouldn't give it to him, or he'd, he'd give him something else. Or he'd, you know, he'd, he, he just slow-walked it, as, yeah. as they say in Washington. Yeah. Make him look hard. So, yeah. And so um, <clears throat> Ehrlichman comes back, and this happens a few times. Like, he goes like every six months for two years. Finally, Jefferson, Jefferson, let me yes. introduce, because this is a complicated story. We do have to break, so take a okay. breath right now. I'll give you a couple of minutes to think, uh, maybe uh, have a sip of coffee. And when we come back, we will finish okay, the story of yeah. this very important uh, matter related to the Kennedy assassination. Thanks very much. What if the music stopped? If the familiar voices were silenced? If there were no breaking news updates? What if your companion and connection to your community came with a monthly fee? Don't worry. We're free local radio with you wherever you go. Celebrating 100 years and looking forward to the next 100. We are broadcasters. Text radio to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on your local TV and radio stations. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. 
Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive. But our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Back and uh, we will continue the story again just to briefly set it up. Uh, this is after Nixon was elected uh, in 1968. He sends John Ehrlichman, one of his key uh, henchmen, uh, over to the CIA and he asks for two files uh, pertaining to the Kennedy assassination and the assassination of the president of South Vietnam. And uh, we now pick up the story, Jefferson, with what you know. Or what you've discovered? Yeah, so so Nixon wants to know. He wants to know about the Bay of Pigs. Bay of Pigs, yeah. Uh, the, and he wants to know about the assassination of the South Vietnamese president. So Ehrlichman comes back empty-handed in September 1971, and he says, and we have this on the tape. He says, you know, Mr. President, he just won't give it to me. He said this stuff is too sensitive, and he will only give it to you in person. So Nixon says, fine. He calls Helms on the carpet says, come over to the Oval Office, and they meet on October 8th, 1971. Uh, they come in, Helms comes in, and um, uh, 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 Nixon says, look, you know, um, I want to I tell you why I came here. Um, you know, I, I, I need your help on this one. And, um, and Nixon then starts to talk 
in a very like honest, blunt way. And he says, now look, I know about the dirty tricks part of it. And that's what he says. I know about the dirty tricks part of it. And I approve of what you do. You overthrew a government in Guatemala in 1954. I approve. You overthrew a government in Iran in 1953. I approve. You had a good plan at the Bay of Pigs and Kennedy screwed it up. I'm totally on your side. Okay. He says, but, but, but I, but I, but I need the, I need these documents on the Bay of Pigs. And Helms doesn't say anything. Helms is a very reserved man. Mm-hmm. And so Nixon starts to press his point. And he's, and he's, and he's explaining, you know, what do I need this for? And he says, I need it for a negotiation. I need it because I'm the president. People criticize me. And then he utters these words. He says to Helms, the who shot John Angle. So when Nixon was asking, when Helms was, when Nixon was asking Helms for material on the Bay of Pigs, he had that thought in mind, the who shot John Angle. That can only be a reference to the assassination of President Kennedy. Now, the other piece of the story comes from Bob Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, and the man who probably spent more time with Nixon than any other human being, even more than his wife. And Bob Haldeman knew Nixon very well. And he said that when Nixon used this phrase, the Bay of Pigs or the whole Bay of Pigs thing or the Bay of Pigs thing. That was his coded reference to JFK's assassination. Haldeman wrote that in his book, um, in his memoir of the Watergate era. So this tape, which nobody had really noticed before, confirms what Haldeman was saying. When Nixon was asking Helms, when he asked him in person, the first thing he said was that he wanted to know about was the who shot John angle. What was, what was Nixon getting at? Well, he was getting at a couple of things. One, the CIA had a lot to hide on Kennedy's assassination. They had said two big lies to the Warren Commission. Okay? The first lie that they did was not really a lie. It was a lie by omission. They did not tell the Warren Commission that the CIA was seeking to assassinate Fidel Castro on the day Kennedy was killed. Mm-hmm. If that had come out, the CIA would have been in a lot of trouble right they did not tell the Warren Commission that. The other thing that the that the CIA lied to the Warren Commission because, was but, more but because this is this is an important fact, I think, and, and I'll, I'll let you get to the second point. We had another hour yeah. coming up, but I think it was important that even critics of the Warren Commission, of which I am one, the reality was, if the United States had any evidence that either Cuba or the Soviet Union was involved in assassinating President Kennedy. There could have been war. Lyndon Johnson and the Warren Commission, perhaps, you know, they, they, they doused the, the, you know, the, the national resolve about the Kennedy assassination, which wasn't much at the time, uh, right. because they didn't want it. They didn't they didn't want to be forced into a war with either Cuba or the Soviet Union. Right. They also did not want to investigate the possibility that it was not foreign people who assassinated President Kennedy, right. that it was enemies within his own government, right. enemies within the CIA. Right. And the CIA was vulnerable on this point because of the other lie that they told the Warren Commission, which was this fellow, Lee Harvey Oswald, who supposedly killed the president. We didn't know anything about him. That's what they told the Warren Commission. We, we didn't know anything about him. We didn't. He just came out of nowhere. But, um, this, but, the, CIA, but the CIA had... 
and maybe still does, they had a very close relationship with organized crime in the United States, which was also very important to Cuba and, and, and wrestling Cuba uh, back from Fidel Castro. I mean, it's all, it, it, it's, it, it's tied That's together. Why, that is why Nixon both wanted him, because he wanted to use this, the power of the CIA, but also why he thought he could coerce them, because he mm. thought, he thought he thought Helms and the CIA were vulnerable on Kennedy's assassination. And here comes the final point of the story. So seven, six days after the burglars are arrested, Nixon is panicking. He wants the FBI investigation shut down. That's when he calls Helms in. This is on June 23rd, 1972. And he instructs Haldeman, and he tells Haldeman, you get Helms in here and you tell him, if this investigation continues, it's going to blow the whole Bay of Pigs thing. Haldeman says that was a reference to JFK's assassination, that he was threatening Helms with information about JFK's assassination. And I think that's right. I think we can now say it was kind of like friendly blackmail. Mm -hmm. It was like, help me out, pal, or else. Right? And or so that was the dynamic. Yeah. That was the dynamic between them and the subtext. The unspoken subtext between them was, did the CIA have a big problem when it came to Kennedy's assassination? That was Nixon's threat mm -hmm. to Helms. Mm -hmm. Well, we will uh, talk uh, more about that. Uh, we've got some. Uh, we've got a break for news coming up here. Our guest uh, is the author of Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. Jefferson Morley is the guest. The president is Richard Nixon. The spymaster is Dick Helms. And Watergate is a hotel. So, and the burglary uh, coming up 50 years ago on June 17th. We're going to pause when we come back. 1-800-723-8289. Your opportunity to answer questions you may have had for 50 years. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. 
Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American... Bruce Dumont back. Hour number two of Beyond the Beltway this evening continues with Jefferson Morley, author of the book Scorpion's Dance. And again, uh, for those that did not hear uh, the beginning of the program this evening, I did want to mention that we're not trying to... uh, uh, whitewash in any way uh, the investigation <laughs> into the January 6th the insurrection uh, this past week. Uh, there's going to be a lot more hearings. We will discuss it. Uh, but again, I want to put it in context that, uh, you know, and, and, and again, I do believe, and you've heard me say this, I do believe that an investigation is important to what to happened on January 6th. I wish the committee was a little more balanced. The Republicans tried to do it, or at least tried to put up a better face. Uh, Nancy Pelosi would not have any of it. And again, I think that whatever the results of this hearing, whatever the results of these hearings are, uh, people are going to be talking about it in 50 years because it wasn't, the investigation wasn't done right. The investigation into the Mm -hmm. Kennedy assassination, which we are still discussing, was not done right. It wasn't on television. And uh, it was a Mm -hmm. stacked deck of interrogators uh, many of whom had axes to grind against President Kennedy, and they were put in charge of investigating, uh, led by the Chief Justice of the United States, and as I mentioned, uh, appointed by Lyndon Johnson, uh, maybe with with the hope that uh, it would not lead uh, to evidence that would suggest we needed to have a military action against Cuba or against, uh, uh, against Russia, and again, uh, the Soviet Union at that point. And again, we have a situation where I think uh, if you ask me where the, where, the, where the lack of confidence or the breakdown in confidence between the American people and its leaders, where it began, it began on November 22nd of 1963, and it, it was perpetuated by the Warren Commission, which, which did irreparable harm. And it's why 50, 60 years later, we're still talking about the Kennedy assassination. The one piece of this, so we have the Kennedy yeah. assassination on one side, 
We have the January 6th hearings uh, literally happening right as we as we speak uh, this week. And in the middle of that is the Watergate hearings. And there's the, the there's the public narrative of what happened. And our gentleman guest this evening, Jefferson Morley, is providing a little background information. This is information that primarily has not been known by the American people. Uh, again, they may have forgotten about it. Maybe they didn't care. We don't have a lot of calls tonight. So you know what? Maybe nobody cares mm -hmm. about this, but this is important information. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> very important, very important information. And uh, yes. uh, Jefferson, I'll let you just summarize uh, uh, or res respond to anything that I just said, and then we're going to move on with my questions. Yeah. Um, I disagree with you, Bruce, there on the January 6th investigation. Okay. I think it's unfortunate that the uh, Republicans didn't participate. Um, uh, I think it would it would be better. I mean, we do have Ms. Cheney there, um, but I think the investigation has been thorough and fair. Um, I'm a skeptic like you of the Warren Commission. Um, I agree with you totally. I think that's when Americans began to lose confidence in their government. But I think the January 6th investigation is is another matter. And we can, and we can talk about that. Oh, yeah. But um, you asked for my, that's my well, quick reaction to what you said. My, so, my, my point is that I think, my, my only point is, I think Republicans should have been able to pick the Republican team members. Uh, they, they uh, the Republicans did try to stack it. I mean, they had Jim Jordan and they had uh, Representative Banks there. So they were going to be, uh, they were going to be pit bulls in questioning. But I don't think you replace the pit bulls with two with Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger both had an axe to grind because of things that were said. But anyway, we're going to discuss that. We're going to be discussing that, folks, for the next 50 years. But tonight we're talking about what <laughs> took place 50 years ago and and the important things, the, the 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 links that you see, the relationship between a president and 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 the CIA. And and Jefferson, I want to go back to. Uh, to something that we've discovered. I mean, the relationship between Richard Nixon and the CIA, I mean, he was a CIA supporter. I mean, he didn't hate the CIA. Totally. And and yet, not at all. With, with Donald Trump, you had the complete opposite. Almost from day one, I don't think he hates the CIA, but he's very skeptical of it. And I think he's skeptical because he has... You know, he's been skeptical of government and he his many of his followers are skeptical of government, skeptical of the Kennedy assassination and every other uh, and including Watergate. So tell us yeah. about yeah, tell no, us how I, difficult his look, job look, might have been. I, I think that's true. And actually, one thing that I like about the Kennedy assassination story yeah. is that it's something that I can talk about with my friends who are supporters of President Trump. I'm more a, a liberal Biden Obama type of yes. guy. But when it comes to the Kennedy assassination, I feel like I could talk with my friends or my, my brother who's pro-Trump. You know, we could talk about the Kennedy assassination and not like have a big fight about it because right. we agree that we don't have the whole story and that, the, you know, the government's story is not credible. And so that's a point of agreement. That's just one point I would make about mm -hmm. when we have these kinds of historical discussions. A second thing that you said, I think is important for people to know. And, um, you know, when we look back at Watergate and you know, we have these kind of myths or stories that we tell ourselves in politics that make sense, you know. And so the story, the Watergate story that's been handed down is, you know, a crusading free press, all the president's men, a lawless president, Nixon. And that's a kind of mythic, simplest, simplistic explanation. Like, 
it's true to a certain extent, but I, I think that it's very simplistic. And what, what we can learn from this is that, you know, we, we form those stories in our mind, those narratives. Um, and then we learn later, no, that really there was something much else going on. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that I think people do need to keep in mind that, you know, we don't get the whole story right away. That's not that's not a justification for being cynical. That's not a justification even for conspiracy theories. Right. It's but it is a justification for taking the government story very skeptically and thinking what you know, what might be going on behind the scenes. So but, that's a that's that, that's a historical lesson that I think we can yeah. learn from the Watergate story. I agree. And with my you. book shows right. that. And in and in each case, I think whenever there's these monumental uh, political uh, matters that come along, uh, the Warren Commission that that was that was delivered because that was the narrative that the 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 powers that be wanted the American people to buy, just as yes, the American people uh, and again very skillfully because of uh, you know the celebrities involved with it. But the reality is that Watergate. And, and, and the Woodward Bernstein a romantic version of it, that's what the establishment wanted everybody to buy. So, I mean, every, everybody's got this narrative. You know, a large percentage of the people are going to stick to the, to the basic narrative, and yet you're going to have maybe 40% of the American people that disagree with it. I just don't think at this moment, you know, long after the, the Warren Commission, uh, I don't think you have 40 people, 40% of the people that believe in the Warren Commission. I think the number is down to maybe 15 no. or 20. Yeah, maybe maybe, maybe 20 to 30 okay. percent, depending, I'll give you depending on the poll that you have. Okay. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I, I guess maybe we can maybe we can narrow the question a little bit. I mean, I write a lot about the CIA. I have done that. Mm -hmm. So one question that I know supporters of President Trump before you heard, before you add, before you ask the question, we got that music playing. We got another okay. spot break coming up. You've teased the next okay. segment of the show, <laughs> and there'll be things for Trump supporters to think about. Back shortly. Okay. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive. But our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. 
Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke anime Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont, we continue with Beyond the Beltway and uh, Jefferson Morley, who joins us from uh, Washington this evening. He was just about uh, to ask a question and uh, or make a statement. So, Jefferson, go ahead. Um, I think you... One of the things that I've heard is um, this idea that the, the January 6th interest was instigated by government agents. Um, and I, I mean, I write about the CIA. I'm skeptical about the government stories. I don't see any evidence of that. I think the evidence makes very clear mm -hmm. that President Trump was responsible for the insurrection at the Capitol and the, and the resulting violence. So I'm watching the hearings. That's my feeling mm -hmm. going into the hearings. Um, I don't see evidence of but this was a product of any uh, government provocateurs. But he has gone out of his way to really, uh, you know, r r rub the CIA's and FBI's nose in the, into the ground. I mean, that's from from yeah, day I one. Mean, I mean, be, before you know, he had he, in my, before he had reason to do it, in my opinion, he right. did it. I mean, he he had a chip on his shoulder about the uh, about American intelligence. Yeah, I think that I, I I think some of that is cultural, like like Richard Nixon. He has an in, in instinctive cultural suspicion of a big institution like the CIA um, and the leadership of that of the of the CIA. The former leaders of the CIA were were pretty hostile to him for his friendly relations with certain Russians. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that hostility between those two, between that White House and that CIA was built in. Now, Trump uh, brought his man, Mike Pompeo, in and uh, to manage things. And Pompeo managed to get along with the CIA types okay and was kind of an intermediary until Trump decided he would be more valuable as Secretary of State. So that was um, really how Trump tried to do that. Then Gina Haspel came in. She's a career CIA officer. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Trump had too many fires going and he was just, that was a fight he wasn't gonna, gonna pick with her. And so uh, he kind of 
towards the end of his term, he was a little less vocal in his hostility to the mm-hmm. to, um, to the CIA. But I, I, the, the point being that that conflict, I don't see the conflict between those between that White House and that CIA as being a causal factor in the insurrection of January 6th. I think the insurrection of January 6th is directly attributable to President Trump and really nobody else. Okay. I want to go back and ask about some of these other cast of characters that we haven't touched sure. on. Uh, a key figure is Alexander Butterfield. Who was yes. he and what made him so important? Alexander Butterfield um, uh, worked in the Nixon White House and he was the person who revealed to Senate investigators that President Nixon had installed the taping system. And he told Senate investigators that in, I think, April or May of 1973. And then all of a sudden, everybody realized, hey, you know, we have this investigation. These tapes will be relevant. We'll hear the president talking about uh, the burglars and all of the related matters. And so then it was Butterfield who made the tapes this big story. Um, uh, He wasn't the only one who knew about the existence of the Mm -hmm. taping system. but he was called in, and uh, and in you know when he was being questioned, he revealed the exi- its existence. Wasn't one of the original motives of the break-in was that uh, the president uh, Nixon felt that Larry O'Brien, who was the head of the DNC, who was a very close Kennedy supporter, uh, yes. that they had a whole plan, a series of dirty tricks that the Democrats were going to use against Richard Nixon in 1972. And that's why Nixon was obsessed in going in and finding out what those secrets were. Yeah, I mean, what what exactly the burglars were after? I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. And there's almost as many answers as there are Watergate books, uh, many different explanations. But the one you're talking about, yes, Larry O'Brien was the chairman of the Democratic Party. He was, uh, 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 you know, going to be leading the Democrats in that in that election of 1972. But there was another connection, too, which was Larry O'Brien had worked for Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was the richest man in America at the time, America's first billionaire, probably. Um, and um, Nixon had also worked with Howard Hughes and at one point had taken a loan from Howard Hughes, um, which the Democrats made a lot of hay about with the suggestion that it was some kind of bribe or something like that. Nixon always resented these attacks, although he never did pay back the loan, which I think he was embarrassed about. But anyway, he was worried that the Democrats were going to revive this uh, idea that he had taken money from Howard Hughes. And since Larry O'Brien had also worked for Howard Hughes, Nixon thought he could turn the tables on O'Brien and use that same thing against him. So he was looking for dirt on Larry O'Brien for sure. And yes, you know, these were the dirty tricks of American politics. And of course, in 19, uh, during that era, I mean, in 1969, Mm -hmm. Ted Kennedy had his Chappaquiddick incident in 1972, right. George Wallace was, uh, there was an assassination attempt, uh, and then there was right. the incident involving Ed Muskie, who turned out to be the candidate, and, and again, or, or leading candidate at that moment, trying to embarrass him by, by crying in the New Hampshire primary. So there were things that were going on that 
if you made a list of who the maybe the three top opponents in 1972 might have been, uh, Ted Kennedy would have been on that list. Uh, I don't know whether the others were, but uh, they were all targets. Certainly, George well, Wallace Nixon, was. George Wallace could have potentially Nixon, kept him from reelection. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot to what you say. I mean, Nixon thought Ted Kennedy would be the candidate in 1972. Right. That was his expectation. Um, George Wallace, at the time that he was shot and wounded um, in May 1972, was riding high in the Democratic primaries, doing very well, and uh, was threatening to run as an independent. And, yeah. and you're exactly right. He might well have thrown the election into the House of Representatives by denying any candidate 270 <laughs> electoral yeah, votes. Right. So, and Muskie was definitely a target of the Nixon campaign. Yeah, we so know that for sure. So, I want to go back. Nixon was. We have a. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. We've got a telephone caller on the line from Spokane, Washington, and uh, Jeannie, go ahead. You're on the air, Jean. Joy, rather. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, hi. Well, you started, right when I was making the call, you started to address it. But okay. I was just very uh -huh. interested in looking at kind of the investigative reporting part of it. Um, you said not to be cynical, and I guess your comments kind of made me more sad uh, than cynical in that when, like, Woodward and Bernstein came out with their book, you know, I think I was younger, obviously, mm -hmm. but there was a sense that they had, like, they had proof. They had all this information. Um, whether or not that was all fed by the government or whatever, I'm not sure. But but now I look at, like, COVID, I look at January 6th, I look at what they call the spy gate, and I can listen. I'm a Democrat, so I have a personal leaning, but I can listen to a Dan Bongino or Bill, Ben Shapiro. I can listen to a Jake Tapper. I can listen to Ari, um, mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. his last Lighter. name is, MSNBC. And they all are citing reports, they're citing, they're citing research, you know, and I think I'm a reasonably, you know, I, I've got a mind that I've used, um, and it confuses me. Um, yeah. So is it that there's just so much that now can be public, and so we're just overwhelmed, or, but how do we, how do we be really smart, um, um, uh, users of all this information and not just go with what our political tilt would be. Okay, yeah. Jefferson, I'll let tackle that. Go ahead. Um, Joy, it's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I suffer from this too, information overload. We have so much media now, we get it so quickly through so many different channels. It is overwhelming, and it is hard to figure out, especially if you try and, you know, sample different points of view. How do you eventually balance them? I'll tell you what I do in my case is I try to limit my consumption. I don't watch much cable news. I, I rely more on newspapers and on the evening news shows. Uh, I mean, I watch, I watch a little bit of cable news, but I find that environment pretty toxic. Um, I find the conversations okay. on Twitter pretty simplistic and toxic. So I just try and stay away from that. So my my solution is is to consume less media and, and be a little more careful to sample widely. I want to know what people who think differently than I do. I want to hear their arguments. I might think it's a bunch of baloney, but I, I still need to know it. That's my my solution is balance and 
put yourself on an information diet. <laughs> I, think th I think that balance is important, but I also think, and again, we discussed this on the program, I think we have to look, whether we're, whether we're watching Fox News, MSNBC, or NBC, or ABC, CBS, when you're, when you're watching those newscasts, you have to think about what message is being sent to you. Is it an accurate message? And you have to ask yourself, does this seem fair? And I think a lot of people believe in this country that Donald Trump has not been treated fairly. Now, again, he's made a lot of mistakes, and we've spoken about them on the program. But has he never had a good day? Or when you're, when you're listening to a news report, a news report on a major show like George Stephanopoulos uh, this week today, you've got to look at the questioning. Look at the questioning of Martha Raddatz. Look at the questioning of Jonathan Carl, and ask yourself, okay, when Jonathan Carl is giving a report, is he trying to trash Trump? Or is he trying to sell his book? Today, if you watch the show today, he's trying to sell his book. Not every week, but look at it. Look at the show just today and ask yourself whether that was a fair show. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back to it. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself. I didn't. Now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. 
She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Still want a reminder this coming uh, Thursday, the 17th, it is the 50th anniversary of the Watergate uh, burglary, uh, break in at the Watergate uh, complex. And again, I'm sure that the network newscasts are going to be doing a lot on that. And again, just on a personal note, if you're a longtime listener to this program, you know we've been on for four decades now. Uh, you, you may not remember, but it was, uh, it was two years later. It was in 1974 on my birthday which is also coming up this week, 30th birthday, I began my investigation, my questioning of what was happening at Watergate, what was happening at the Kennedy, Kennedy assassination. And so I have an anniversary myself coming up of dealing with this subject on the air in a variety of sources and a variety of ways. And so I'm very pleased that Jefferson Morley joins us. Uh, and again, I, I think in the 40-plus year history of the show, I don't think we've ever done uh, maybe two or three shows with one guest for the full two hours. And so, uh, Jefferson, we thank you very much for being with us. Uh, I wholeheartedly uh, support the book. It's called Scorpion's Dance, The President, the Spymaster, and Watergate, Jefferson Morley. And by the way, if you're my age, you're going to learn a lot of stuff that you never read in the first take of history. And if you're considerably younger <laughs> than I, you've heard your parents or grandparents talk about it. And frankly, it's about time for you to take a moment, take a few hours and, and delve into this book and learn about the history because you will learn and know a lot more about Watergate than you think you do just because you spent a couple of hours, uh, you know, watching all the president's men. Jefferson, let me ask you a quick uh, publishing question. Is this going to be an audio book, or is it an audio book as well? Yes, I was, I was just going to say that. First of all, Bruce, thank you for giving the time. Uh, I really appreciate that. These are Good. complex issues, and to have yes, the time where we can really explain is really valuable. So thank you for that. Yes, there is an audio book, which you can get through the um, – I, my book is published by St. Martin's Press as a publishing house. That's part of the larger publishing house, Macmillan. Mm -hmm. And if you go to Macmillan Audio, you can get a very good audio book. Uh, it's read by a good actor, and, it, and he lends a lot of drama to the story. Good. So um, if, you're, if, if you like to consume your books that way, uh, get the audio book. There's also a Kindle ebook version if you, uh, you, know, if, if, if you have, want to read, prefer to read your books on the Kindle. Um, and there will be a paperback at some point, but we're not there yet. Okay. Anyway, 50 years, uh, know the rest of the story uh, by reading the book. Uh, speaking about knowing the rest of the story, 
for those like yourself who've done some investigation into the Kennedy assassination, and we should mention you have a blog on called JFK, the JFK blog, which follows the, the, the trials and tribulations of the Kennedy story. Yeah, uh, it's called JFK Facts, jfkfacts.org. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've been blogging there since 2012 about uh, new information relevant to the Kennedy assassination story. Like a lot of people, I've been waiting so people, and waiting and waiting and waiting for the release of all this information that was supposed to come out. The National Archives, they, they hold it. Uh, there was supposed to be a huge dump of that information, actually twice in the last couple of years. Everyone thought that Donald Trump was going to release it. Uh, he even said he was going to release it. He promised that he was going to release it when he was running. And certainly many in his constituency would like it released, but it didn't happen. What happened? You know, uh, I'm like I, I've told you, I'm not a fan of President Trump, but I did hold some hope. And Lord I actually I. thought, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump was maybe more likely to do this than if Hillary Clinton was president. Yes. You know, I, I think she would have been a very pro CIA president. Why did President Trump cave? It's a very good question. Here's what we know, Bruce. He met with Chris Ray and Mike Pompeo a couple of days before the deadline for release of these records. Right. And Pompeo and Ray conveyed to him the sentiment of their agencies, which was, we don't want to release this material for national security reasons. A huge amount of material. We're talking about maybe 15,000 different documents that contain some redactions, some a paragraph, a word, a line, a whole page. You know, 15,000 documents related to Kennedy's assassination still have secret material. And Trump gave the agencies a pass on this one. And all I can say, he never talked about it. He said he was going to do it. Yes. He claimed he did it, and he didn't. Um, I think that well, some of know, it came. Some of it came. Of, some of, of it. The, some of it did come out on the last day. He said something, but there was a yes, huge, no, no. There was a huge bunch of it that had been, uh, you know, redacted, and uh, it was almost a, a useless dump uh, of, of information. Yeah, they, 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 it's a typical CIA gambit. They, they give you a little bit and they hold back a lot. And that's what happened under President Trump. And I could only conclude that for some reason he won on that day. He didn't want to pick a fight with the CIA right. because, you know, he, he could have done it at the stroke of a pen. And for some reason he did not. And I can only assume there was something that was in his interest that changed his mind. Yeah. Frankly, I wish he would have done that the day after he lost, although he didn't acknowledge that he lost, I uh -huh. would have much preferred that he released all that information than uh, get involved in a rally at, uh, at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. But it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. That's not the way history. But again, I think the latest uh, information, uh, and by the way, this is, this is, not, this is a, a, a congressional uh, dictate that the president has avoided, and not only this president, I mean, everyone is, has avoided it. Yeah, no, um, no, and I, and I should yeah. say, President Biden did the same thing. Yeah, right, right. Uh, last October, right. Um, the agencies came to him and said, this time they said, oh, uh, COVID, you know, uh, yeah. we couldn't do it because of COVID. So after, you know, this is 29 years after, after Congress passed that law, the CIA comes along and says, the COVID dog ate my homework. Sorry, I didn't do my homework. I mean, it's just, it was not a very convincing argument at all. But Biden gave them a pass. Now, 
he set a new deadline of later this year, December 15th of this year. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. But I'm not I'm not optimistic. I think that these presidents do not want to defy the CIA on this issue. Right. Not President Trump and not President Biden. Right. And, and so I think as part of this world in which we live, where so many people distrust their government, the fact remains is there is the, the evidence uh, to prove one thing or another, good or bad, mm-hmm. about one of the most uh, important events of uh, uh, this country's history is being kept from you by your elected leaders. And again, yeah. hopefully it will come out. I mean, I, I think that we're big enough and broad enough to overcome this. I think certainly uh, the, the, the church committee investigation during the mid-1970s, which really unearthed all of the skullduggery and all the things that were being done uh, by the CIA, primarily the CIA, to some extent FBI, all the things about how the CIA was involved in the attempted assassinations and overthrow of Cuba and Fidel Castro and, you know, destabilizing their government, all this stuff, the relationship between the CIA and organized crime, it's real, it's not phony, it's not a movie, it's real, and it all came out in 1975. So a lot of people woke up to what their government was doing to them uh, in mid-1970s, yeah. and, as, and as a result of that, um, Congress did try to rein in the CIA at that point. Jefferson, how, how successfully yeah. uh, were, were they able to do it? Because, uh, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of conservatives uh, complained that the CIA's hands were tied because of Frank Church. Do you agree with that, or yeah. did they do good? Uh, I, 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 I don't agree with that, but, but I do agree your basic premise that, that the CIA was put under a whole new form of control. So mm-hmm. the, the institutions that we now have for overseeing the Intelligence Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee, those were created in 1976 and 1977, respectively. Um, so before that, when Richard Helms wanted to get approval for the CIA's budget, he went to one man, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. There were no hearings. There was no consultation. Nobody else knew anything about mm-hmm. it. After Watergate and after the investigation of the CIA, the number of people in Washington who were informed and responsible for CIA covert operations became much larger. Certainly the eight top leaders in Congress, the Mm so-called Gang of Eight. Um, The courts were involved in a new way with the creation of the FISA courts. So the CIA was put under a new regime. Their budget was cut for the first time under, uh, under President Ford and then under President Carter. Um, and their, their, uh, some of their foreign relations with repressive governments were cut back. People at the CIA resented that. So the CIA's power was curbed, at least in the short term. In the long term, the CIA came back and, and reasserted itself. The CIA uh, gained a lot of funding and new powers when President Reagan came in. Um, that eventually culminated in the Iran-Contra affair. So mm-hmm. the CIA was 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 suffered a blow after Watergate, um, suffered real controls, change of the whole way they had to operate. Um, but they were they endured and they remained a powerful institution within the Washington kind of power structure. Mm-hmm. And they regained a measure of power both in the 80s and then 
in the early 2000s after 9-11. Again, got a lot more budget, a lot more authority, mm -hmm. and they were able to expand. And they had the, and they, they had the support in the wake of 9-11. They had the support of the American people that, you know, were looking for avenge to, to avenge what had happened. By the way, yeah. one, one, one quick one quick message. We've sure. got about 20 seconds left. One thing that you say that's that's behind this uh, wall with the uh, National Archives is a conversation between, listen to this, folks, and then we're going to get Jefferson's response on the other side. One of the things that's hidden there because of national security is a conversation between author William Manchester and Jackie Kennedy. Yes. What could she possibly have known? Back shortly on Beyond the Beltway. song again for the hundredth time today here's that song again it's gonna be stuck in your head all day here's that song again it will make you cray cray you love your kids enough to watch that tv show a bajillion times love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size show them you love them keep them safe visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat brought to you by the national highway traffic safety administration and the ad Council. is that a faucet running that's not a faucet that's a river rushing through the forest forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink what i can't hear you because of the vacuum that's not a vacuum that's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe i didn't know the trees were so amazing yep and the forest gives us shade trees to climb that's awesome let's go explore some more visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you to learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. I'm, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay? isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm uh, coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. 
Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway, and uh, our very favorite guest uh, is with us, uh, Jefferson Morley, at least our favorite guest this evening, Jefferson. Uh, there will be somebody here next week, by the way. I should mention that our thanks to uh, Chris Roebling for sitting in last week while I was on uh, on vacation. But uh, Jefferson, back to you for those that uh, just tuned in. Um, what was, in your view, based on all of your evidence compiled in this book, what was the what was the pivotal turning point in the Nixon fall from grace? I think it was probably um, the exposure of the White House taping system and the and the preservation of those tapes because that contained the evidence that when Nixon was forced to release those tapes in July 1974 led directly to his resignation um, because they provided uh, smoking gun proof, so to speak, that he had been trying to object, obstruct the investigation of the burglary of the burglars from six days after the burglar, the burglary happened. So it was the revelation of that smoking gun tape that, uh, that finished him. So I think it was the, the existence of those tapes revealed in May 1973 that was probably once that had happened, I think uh, uh, Nixon was he was almost trapped by his the evidence that he himself had generated. Mm -hmm. And that was at that particular point, uh, what had been a drip, drip, drip of information became almost a, a faucet, uh, open faucet. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I think one thing that's important for people to understand is, is that the. Um, uh, the Washington press corps underwent a, a kind of profound cultural change be, you know, through the 1960s, like we were talking before, since the Warren commission, you had the Warren commission, you had the Vietnam war, you know, the Warren commission where the, the government gave an explanation of president Kennedy's assassination that frankly wasn't very credible. And the more you studied it, the less credible it looked. Then uh, in the Vietnam war, the government kept saying, you know, we're going to win this war, you know, if we just escalate a little bit more, the lights at the end of the tunnel. And they were saying that year after year, and we never got any closer to winning that war. So after eight years of this, these, you know, unconvincing, uh, you know, statements, they, there was what they called the credibility gap. People just didn't believe the government anymore. And reporters who up to that point had often, you know, kind of reflexively, instinctively taken the point of view of the government, that wasn't going to happen anymore. They were going to ask questions because the public was just too skeptical. And so there's that cultural change that drives the, the reporters and the Congress, too, to say, no, you know, we're not going to take the CIA's claims at face value anymore. We want to know the story. We're going to call these guys on the carpet. And that happened to Richard Helms, you know, the mm -hmm. character in my book. He gets called on the carpet. He tells a bunch of lies about a CIA assassination operation in Chile. And, uh, you know, he gets in trouble for it and eventually has to plead guilty. And he becomes the only CIA director ever convicted of a crime. Well, that was, you know, that was kind of unthinkable before that the CIA would be held accountable for lying to Congress like that. But that's what happened. So it was that assertion of power by Congress that really kind of drove the Watergate scandal. Also, we should mention that if you go back to the Warren Commission and the lack of credibility that it has, in, in that way, one of the major news operations in the world, uh, Time Life, uh, Time Life, Time, 
Dow Time Warner. Yeah. They they purchased the rights to the Zipruder film. Uh, who was a young man from uh, Dallas who was photographing uh, with his little eight millimeter camera. Uh, they they took that video and they altered the video, and they presented it as part of the official record to Life magazine, which was the big was the it was the dominant magazine uh, certainly for the mm -hmm. masses, and uh, they they presented a false uh, history of what happened in Dallas. And so, but again, it does get back to the question I asked before the break. What is it that Jackie Kennedy could have told her biographer, William Manchester, that makes that information and that interview um, suspect to being uh, held for another 35 years? Have you ever um, thought about it? Yeah, so, yeah, the, the, um, it's an interesting story. William Manchester was a well-known journalist and historian, a friend of Jackie Kennedy's, right. and he interviewed her about four times in 1964. Um, and, uh, and they put a condition that this material would not be released for 75 years. So it won't be until 2039 that that material is released. What could she have said? I mean, other people have talked about what she said in particular about her husband's assassination and one of the things that she told manchester and we know this from jackie kennedy's biographer is she did not believe the account of the of the shooting that the warren commission stated and she told a friend of hers when she was told this is how the warren commission this is what the warren commission is going to say happened right Jackie's sitting right next to her husband when he's killed, when he when he gets yep. hit in the head with a bullet right. and his blood is spattered all over her. So she's the closest witness to the crime. And she said when she was told how the Warren Commission was going to describe the crime, the shooting, which was two shots from behind, Jackie said, that's not how I remember it at all. And that's, you know, when it, if, if and when people get to see those words, to have the first lady saying, she didn't believe the Warren Commission. That's why that that's why that conversation has been locked up right. and, and why we're not we're probably not going to see it anytime. Soon. And anybody that ever looks at the Zapruder film would ask the same question. Uh, Jeffrey, we we are out of time. Uh, Jeffrey uh, Jefferson Morley has been our guest. He is author of the book called uh, Scorpions Dance, the President, the Spymaster and Watergate again. The 50th anniversary of Watergate is coming up uh, this Thursday. And again, if you've, uh, uh, it'll be a stroll down memory lane for a lot of people. But again, you'll pick <laughs> up a lot of uh, uh, new information. And again, uh, uh, I assume that uh, if you're alive and well, you're going to be ready to break that story when, uh, if and when President Biden releases this information, it'll be after uh the midterms uh, before he goes to the post again. So uh, if you're a Democrat, you want to know the history, put the uh, pressure on the president. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks to Fritz Goldman. See you next week. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. 
Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably... Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke anime Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners. 